This episode of BevNet's Taste Radio is powered by Cognizin. Find your focus. Cognizin, an industry-leading nootropic for work, exercise, gaming, or every day. Cognizin is the gold standard for focus, mental energy, and comprehensive brain health in your functional beverage. Give your customers the best ingredient for brain health with Cognizin. Learn more at Cognizin.com. Thanks for tuning in to Taste Radio, the number one podcast for the food and beverage industry. I'm editor and producer Ray Latif, and you're listening to episode 210, which features an interview with Annie Chun and Steve Broad, the co-founders of Annie Chun's and Gimme Snacks. Tune in on Friday, April 24th for episode 82 of Taste Radio Insider, when we sit down with Lee Robinson, the executive leader for dairy and beverage at Whole Foods Market. Just a reminder, if you like what you hear on Taste Radio, please share the podcast with friends and colleagues. And of course, would love it if you could review us on the Apple Podcasts app or your listening platform of choice. After building one of the most successful ethnic-themed packaged food brands in America, Annie Chun and Steve Broad set their sights on disrupting the snack category with seaweed. The co-founders of Annie Chun's, a brand of Asian-inspired noodle bowls, soup bowls, sauces, and snacks, Annie and Steve grew sales to $15 million annually before selling the company in 2009 to South Korea-based CJ Foods. Three years later, the entrepreneurial bug bit them once more, incensing an opportunity to adapt a traditional Korean snack for an American audience, they launched Gimme, a brand of dried organic seaweed snacks. Committed to sourcing sustainably grown organic seaweed, Gimme helped pioneer a new segment of Asian-centric, better-for-you brands in the snack aisle and has established itself as the leading company in the burgeoning space. In the following interview, I spoke with Annie and Steve about the origins of Annie Chun's and its evolution from a farmer's market brand to one distributed in grocery stores across the country. They also spoke about lessons learned from their first venture and how they incorporated those into Gimme and why they continually evaluate the brand's positioning to appeal to American consumers. Hey folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. I'm on a call right now with Annie Chun and Steve Broad, the co-founders of Gimme Snacks and Annie Chun's. Annie, Steve, how are you? Great, thank you. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, The sun is shining. It was a vicious rainstorm yesterday, um, and I'm happy that we're past that. (laughs) Did you have a rainstorm in your neck of the woods? No, we've had sunny weather here. Fortunate. Where are you calling in from? Uh, we're in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Ah, fantastic. Uh, and that's where uh, the, your first brand, Annie Chun's, was founded, right? Indeed, at the Marin County Farmer's Market. Yeah. Annie, could you tell us a bit about why and how you launched Annie Chun's? Well, um, I guess that was 1991. I did not have a, any grand plan. I was just in a place where um, I was tired of working for companies and trying to make career uh, as an immigrant. And then I saw the opportunity. So I just jumped in and changed that. And that was to go to farmer's market and start to sell my sauce. And I had never had a grand plan about like, wow, I'm going to grow this company really big. Uh, 
never crossed my mind. I just was happy doing something that I was following my heart. So cooking was always, you know, pretty easy and fun for me um, since I grew up with a mother who was wonderful, wonderful cook. So I went out with two types of sauce, fresh Thai curry and Thai peanut sauce. At that time, I wanted to do Korean food, but we did not have enough audience. But Thai food was coming around in 1991. So little did I know uh, that I was jumping into something much more complicated, you know, to, to grow the business. But all I thought of was that I was super happy following my heart, doing the things that I wanted to do, being around people in outdoor market, selling my sauce. So I was keep doing that. <laughs> and uh, that led to one after the other, one after the other. And, you know, that led it to uh, be what Annie Chan is today. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, in 1991, we didn't see many ethnic food brands, ethnic packaged food brands, and particularly Korean-themed packaged food brands or Korean-centric food brands. I can imagine how challenging it was at the outset. But how did you get people to understand, number one, what the food was, and number two, how to use it in their kitchens? Because I'm assuming you're essentially using the sauces to cook at home. I mean, it's not like something that you'd use with a hamburger per se. Right. So that was a good learning experience for me. But the thing was, I had a chance to talk to consumer one and one by selling each jar. So I was making the sauce that it was very friendly, user-friendly and ready to pour. And surprisingly, the consumers who were shopping at local farmer's market had a very open mind and they were so willing to try something different. And they thought it, it tasted great and it was very healthy and fresh. So I had a good jump start with that. And by doing that, I was learning, okay, I need to come up with a recipe, variety of different recipe, how they can use to more sophisticated cooking, to simple cookings. So my true experience was just by following my heart, something that I felt comfortable to do and not be afraid to go out there and start meeting people, exchanging ideas and just learning and adopting and growing at the same time. Now, you said uh, more people knew about Thai food at the time. How did that affect how you communicated the brand and the positioning of Annie Chun's? Honestly, while I was in farmer's market, I had no clue how I was going to build the brand. But uh, later on, I learned from consumer that people do like ethnic flavors. People do like simple, healthy ingredients. They wanted to make a change. They wanted to feel like they can cook friendly Asian food without having to go to a restaurant. So Anichan became more of a pan-Asian flavor. Like I say, I wanted to do Korean food, but I knew that I wasn't going to sell much bottles. So I started with the Thai food. Then I introduced something kind of like Japanese flair, which was my family recipe called the Shidake Mushroom Sauce. So one by one, I was layering off, like, I guess my new experiment, like what people might like and how easier, easier to use 
um, more people will like this flavor, not as esoteric. It just went on like that. A lot of brands start at the farmer's market and you do have a captive loyal audience a lot of times from folks that you can connect with on a one-on-one basis. It's a little bit more difficult when you're scaling and trying to get on shelf at retail chains. How did you make that jump, that initial jump from farmer's markets to retail? Yeah, we first realized that there was some strong demand at the farmer's market. We started doing multiple farmer's markets through the Bay Area, and that was our initial course for the first couple years. And then in March 1994, we did our first fancy food show. So we had four sauces by then, and we had gone to a food technologist to make sure they're shelf stable, et cetera. And uh, at that show, actually, we had some great response, uh, Marshall Fields, Wild Oats, Safeway in Alaska, even American Airlines in Dallas-Fort Worth was, you know, we were shipping glass jars of gallons of mushroom sauce. And then the following year, in fact, we won first place at the Fancy Food Show for Outstanding Healthy Nutritious Product. And that was a period where the health food was really starting to have a big uptick. So the fact that we were sort of making all-natural Asian flavors, and as Ann noted, the genesis from the farmer's market was Mm -hmm. with Thai food because that was kind of an early trend. And then it slowly kind of started to convert to more of her family's background, which uh, uh, in fact, her grandparent mother, mother had been one of the first women of Korea to be educated in Japan. So a lot of Japanese influence played a role in their family. And, you know, that became some of the genesis of our best core flavors, eventually like uh, miso and udon and teriyaki. You know, early on, it was just sort of hand to mouth and learning as we go. But we got a lot of press and a lot of great response. But again, we were not flush with money. In fact, we had to, you know, borrow the first 10,000 and then it was a constant like that. So it was a lot of hand to mouth and not with big funds. And we were, you know, pretty tidy, but always, as Ann mentioned, kind of always been innovating. For example, at the farmer's market, she used to serve the shiitake mushroom sauce on rice noodles. And so we, at one point, looked to import those rice noodles from Thailand, but it would have been requiring buying a whole container for like $20,000, you know, way too much money. But we were at a, uh, one of the fancy food shows, I think, in 96 and serving on rice noodle. And this Chinese gentleman came up to us and turns out he had a factory in L.A. And he had the idea to bring rice noodle machine to the U.S., which was kind of the first time rice noodles, the Thai rice noodle was made here. And then Ann had the idea, why don't we flavor the rice noodle? So in addition to original, we did a Thai basil flavor. We had a chili hunan and a mushroom garlic, I think, flavor. So... We kind of had this whole concept of sort of like the Italians back in the history, they had the pasta sauce and the spaghetti, and then they made it easy for everybody to kind of make pasta. And that was our concept. We had the bottle of Thai peanut sauce and the rice noodle, and everybody could make pad thai or something. And so that was sort of the, became part of the theme of making Asian food more convenient and it was at a period of time when the specialty food and the natural food started to merge because back in the day, specialty food was very specialty and natural food was kind of very hardcore. And then 
slowly there became this blending where specialty food crossed over and the the quality of the natural food in the natural food stores was starting to ramp up, which now we see, you know, them being very gourmet, even while they're natural compared to the early days. Once you got into places like Whole Foods, did your positioning have to change? Did you have to adjust how you were communicating the product and the flavor names to an audience that may not have been as familiar with Asian cooking and Asian ingredients? Absolutely. In fact, Anne was always very sensitive to that. So we kept it, you know, to more like soy ginger or peanut sesame, kind of more common garlic scallion, for example, as opposed to calling out like specific Asian cuisine names. And then eventually, and this was even 10 years later in the early 2000s, we finally went to a packaging designer and kind of really started to put out a proper brand look. But that was 10 years later. So it was a lot of small steps over a long period of time. Were you comfortable with taking those small steps? I mean, Steve, you talked about starting with $10,000, which, you know, doesn't really sound like a lot of money to start a company, especially one that's been as successful as Annie Chun's. But when you are taking those small steps, was that intentional or was that sort of just driven by the fact that you weren't necessarily looking to take on a lot of money and a lot of debt or give away equity in the company? Well, as noted, that 10000 was borrowed. So we started from the borrowing position, but it was kind of a twofold thing. I think first it was our own sort of not knowing exactly how it all plays out. So kind of, you know, step by step that way. And secondly, I think also the consumer public wasn't necessarily ready and mass for what we were doing. It's kind of ironic because some of the products like uh, aseptic, the Tetra Pak Asian soup, like miso udon, which we were the first to do Asian flavors globally. And now, you know, we've noticed last year at the expo, you know, now there's several companies doing Asian flavors. That's like 15 years after we did it. So we were kind of way ahead of our time. And that's when you do need actually funds to be able to wait till the consumer public also catches up. Or in these days, fortunately, with the whole social digital, you know, there's more chance to connect quicker than I think 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, when we talked last, you know, in our pre-interview call, one of the things that was really interesting to me is that you said that a lot of decisions were driven by survival, uh, that there wasn't a lot of room to, to test and learn. There wasn't a lot of room for errors. You know, how do you run a company, frankly, when, you know, you're not really sure that a product is going to work, that you just have to go to market with what you have? Yeah. I mean, fortunately, the background of our company had been sort of very direct to consumer, first in the farmer's markets, and then in starting with stores, doing demos, you know, even around the country. So uh, you kind of get to see a lot from, you know, interacting directly with people. And then, yeah, I mean, another point was the fact that we're married and we have two children and, you know, our children were small and grew up. And so they were, you know, maybe our second and third babies. No, but so we were doing 
whole family thing along with business. So that kind of was, you know, some of the dynamic that we faced. And fortunately, we have supportive family on both of our sides to allow us to get out when we needed to. But I think Anne, from her experience having immigrated here and then done a lot of, you know, different jobs, including in retail, and started to really sense like about the American consumer and then had a really kind of uh, unique and uh, amazing way of, of sort of taking some of her uh, authentic and cultural experience and then translating it into what the American consumer could relate to. And I think that was just, you know, fortunate that we had that base. You know, there was a lot of learning. As I mentioned, we started with sauce and then we got into the noodle. So, because the thing about sauce is that it could take a consumer how many days, weeks to finish a bottle. So then we had the noodle to kind of pair it off. And then the big hit was when we put the noodle and sauce together in what we call the meal kit. And that's when we also did our rebrand in 2001. And that exploded uh, relatively. And then we went into, as I mentioned, the aseptic soup, Asian flavors, and that was a certain success with the retailers, but not commercially because the consumer didn't know what to do. But that led to our noodle bowl where, for example, Anne did a couple key things different. One, in Asian culture or in Japanese culture, you don't really have noodles with miso soup, but we put the noodles there to kind of give more of a meal effect. Typically, uh, miso is made with uh, bonito, but Anne had the idea to want to make it vegetarian and therefore use like shiitake mushroom and kombu, which is a seaweed extract to help build the flavor and still have a very complex flavor. And I think that was one of our hallmarks is that the flavor and the quality was so great for bottled food and packaged food. However, that also definitely affected margin. And that's one of the biggest learnings I gained out of uh, Annie Chun's was the fact that margin is so important and it's really hard. In fact, you can't survive if you don't have a, a relatively good margin. How do you balance the two, you know, this need for exceptionally high quality when it comes to ingredients and margin? Well, that's an interesting point. And I think it becomes part of a company philosophy because certainly a lot of our competition was of significantly lesser quality, but when consumer maybe doesn't know what to expect, they don't know what good quality is and they were, you know, had a lot of success as well. But I think what defined and what's extended the brand for now 25 years or whatever it's been, and it's still on shelf compared to a lot of other competitors that were much bigger, I think that kind of base quality. So from the quality, it's really not necessarily the high, super high incremental cost, but I think that's where operational efficiency becomes so important because ingredients is one component, but the uh, operations is so important as well. And that was some of our challenge because we'd have multiple vendors and we did want to make our sauce in USA, not in China or Thailand. Uh, so that added to cost. And then the kind of noodle we used, which was like a fresh but shelf-stable noodle was made, we found in Korea. So we were importing and then assembling in the U.S. And that became a very extended and uh, expensive 
supply chain. So that's where the margin thing gets hit so much as opposed to ingredients. It sounds like it was a grind to scale and to develop Annie Chun's. At the end of the day, you built a very successful brand and one that it sounds like you were pretty happy exiting. What got you back into the business with Gimme Snacks? Well, I guess we did have success, as you note, and this, and more than kind of financial success, it was commercial success. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, we were still not so old and, you know, looked to work and just felt that for what we do, kind of being an entrepreneur is is kind of where the comfort zone is. When you sold Annie Chun's, you know, did you feel like there was an opportunity to do something that you hadn't been able to do with that brand? Probably. I think that there was probably maybe a certain sense of unfinished business because the fact that we were so resource constrained with Annie Chun's. And <laughs> I mean, part of the reason we had, we went to sell was because, you know, at some point, you know, financial resources are needed to grow a business. And at that time, and maybe, you know, there was probably far limited sources compared to this day and age where a lot of uh, private equity has now gotten involved in the natural space, but that was a lot less so 15 years ago, 20 years ago. When you decided to launch Gimme Snacks, how much more preparation did you put into business planning as opposed to what you did with Annie Chunge, which sounds like just, you know, get out there, get into the farmer's markets and sell? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, far more, you know, from having a proper supply arrangement and agreements and doing the proper trademark work and doing the proper branding work. And yeah, all those pieces that we had no idea in the beginning what to do with Annie Chun's and learned along the way. Of course, we could, uh, you know, utilize that knowledge and experience to execute so that we build the proper infrastructure to grow a bigger business. Because at the end of the day, it starts with your base and you build up and if your base isn't proper, then you're going to have to go rebuild that base before you can really get to the next level. So you launched with seaweed snacks, which isn't the most easily understood snack or food in the United States, at least. Why did you decide to go with that product as your initial, uh, as the initial product for, for Gimme? Well, the main reason was we were innovating and we were the first to pioneer organic seaweed snacks. So Prior to what we did, nobody had the USD organic seaweed snacks. So that was important. And then second, we were innovating with products. So not only did we do the organic seaweed, but we also created a, a product line called Crumbles, which sort of helped us out in the beginning. And it was a different species of seaweed. And we did a honey Dijon and a cheddar cheese flavor and a teriyaki flavor. And... In the beginning, actually, the retailers all didn't take Gimme, even if we were the first to be organic and we were also non-GMO, but because they said, oh, we have seaweed snacks, they're all selling well, but they said, oh, we need more. So they took our crumbles. And then the following year, Whole Foods had made a declaration to be non-GMO in five years. And then the buyer mm -hmm. also emphasized to his 
regions that, hey, this is organic, non-GMO, we should do this. And kind of the rest is history. Once we got on shelf, because of our focus on quality, again, it really, the consume, and also we made the packaging not Asian. We just kept it light and friendly and a little more futuristic and sort of the combination of the brand and the quality has propelled us to, to the leadership position today. Annie, Steve mentioned that you were better prepared this time around to launch a food brand, a packaged food brand. At the end of the day, did you feel like your preparation was enough to limit the mistakes and limit the pitfalls that came with your first brand, Annie Chun's? Of course, but as much as we had an experience with Annie Chun, this was working with the CV was completely different, different thing. It was whole new learning experience that in terms of business and distributions operation, we already had a lesson behind that we were able to make the stride and eliminate the mistakes. But anytime you're entering new experience, you are also facing big challenges. So I have to say in some level or many levels, we have learned so much more and different experience through this second business. What are some of those lessons that you learned this time around that are distinct from your first brand? The fact of the matter is with Annie Chun's, the food was uh, relatively more processed. When you're making sauce, when you're making noodles, that's basically processed foods. So it's easier to keep a tighter specification. But when we're dealing with uh, seaweed, it's very minimally processed. So it's all about that raw material. So the way we achieved it, and we were very fortunate in the uh, beginning to partner with basically the largest seaweed company in Korea. And they had a lot of contacts and they nurtured their relationships with the farmers. And it's all about what the farmers are doing in growing the seaweed and where it's grown and the water temperature and what time of the, because the seaweed grows in the winter from December to March. It's interesting you mentioned an acquired taste because when someone first encounters seaweed snacks, when I first encountered seaweed snacks, I really didn't know what to make of them. Um, I wasn't sure if it was something that I was supposed to eat because it was better for me or it was just fun or if it was, there was a specific flavor that I would appreciate. How do you sell the products? How do you position seaweed snacks? And is it different than when you first started? Is it about nutrition? Is it about fun? Is it about flavor? Yeah, I'd say it's about all of those. And additionally, I think it's about discovering new experiences for the consumer and that seaweed can be a whole new world for people who just can't imagine. And Interesting enough, it can become an acquired taste because sometimes it doesn't necessarily hit somebody right off the bat, but slowly they integrate it. And if you start to use it, incorporate it into your food, you can put a little rice or cheese inside the seaweed and roll it up and eat it. And different ways, avocado, I mean, there's a whole range of uses beyond just eating it straight. And the key for us is that, you know, because of our focus on quality, our seaweed doesn't come off fishy taste. And that's what can really turn off consumer is when it has a little bit fishy kind of sense, which it can. 
I would assume that would turn off a lot of mainstream consumers. Mainstream consumers aren't necessarily looking for uh, fishy tasting snacks. So when you are innovating and when you are thinking about expanding the line, is it really just about appealing to your base or is it first and foremost about appealing to your base and then potentially expanding to more mainstream focused consumers? Or when you, when you do innovate, are you really looking to go beyond that base and, and reach folks that are not as familiar with a, say a seaweed snack? Yeah, I would say that it hopefully serves both. I mean, I think in terms of our base, I mean, we're far from capturing all the potential consumers we could be, but as well, I mean, the goal is to try to expand and compete against other mainstream snacks. And I kind of view it the way Glasso had uh, smart water, then they created the vitamin water, which became much bigger. But now people have realized that, you know, they're still taking in some sugar and they've now smart water is so much bigger. So I think with seaweed, if we create those more mainstream products like a vitamin water that eventually people will move back to the lowest calorie, cleanest, most nutritious form, which is the seaweed snack. Well, Steve and Annie, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for sharing the history and the strategy behind creating two really outstanding brands. I remember when I first encountered Annie Chun's, uh, I thought, wow, this is exactly what we needed because as you noted, there was nothing like it on the market. And I think it's the same thing with Gimme Snacks too. I, I, as I mentioned, was a little skeptical about seaweed snacks and ever since now I've been a fiend when it comes to eating seaweed snacks. So thank you so much for being pioneers in our food industry and for, you know, leading a new generation of brands in this amazing space. Great. Well, thank, thank you, you so very much. much. For your time. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. That brings us to the end of episode 210. Thank you so much for listening and thanks to our guests. Annie Chun and Steve Broad. You can catch both Taste Radio and Taste Radio Insider on tasteradio.com, the Apple Podcasts app, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. As always, for questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email to ask at tasteradio.com. On behalf of the entire Taste Radio team, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey folks, it's Ray with Taste Radio. Right now, I'm honored to be sitting down with David Sandler, an industry consultant working with Kiwahako. David, great to see you. Hey, great to see you guys. David, you've been in this business, the beverage business, for over 20 years. You've been working on functional beverages for quite some time as well. And I'd love to hear from you about that term, because it's an often used term in industry. But what is a functional beverage? As far as, you know, its category, a, a lot of things fit in it. And mostly it has to do with sort of the overall way it can benefit the human body to some effect that you wouldn't normally derive regularly without some nutritional support. But more so, it seems to be used in the category of like mood, relaxation, or some other type of performance benefit that you might get, say, to improve athletic ability or fitness or health aspects. So we're seeing a lot now of products coming out that fit that mold where you're talking about more mood, relaxation, 
even hydration, and then having energy for performance or for health. There are a lot of benefits that can be described as functional, but within this umbrella of functional beverages, could you talk about the growth of the category and where it's going in 2024 and beyond? Well, it seems like the growth is uh, never ending. And it seems like single serve RTDs are still on the rise. Energy drinks are still plowing through. They seem to be continually increasing. Now what we're seeing, though, is an attempt to try to add some other additional benefits to energy drinks, including hydration and, you know, focus, mood, and just better overall feeling. And we're starting to see other health benefits being added to some of these drinks as well. Let's talk about one functional ingredient in particular, that's Cognizant, which is an ingredient that I have a lot of love and respect for. But talk about Cognizant and what makes it a leading nootropic. Well, one, you come with uh, years and years of experience from the makers, uh, Kiwahako. They just have such great processes and really stellar research and very solid scrutiny behind their ingredients that they do work with and promote. And so from there, you know you're going to get something that's that's really, you know, first class. We talk a lot about having better focus in today's workplace or today's environment where there's so many factors that are going on. This ingredient seems to really shine. Its data shows unparalleled performance. And uh, for myself as a user and a formulator, it's finding its place in many of the drinks that I am working on where I'm trying to enhance focus, enhance mood, and improve cognition over uh, longer-term use. Is this an ingredient that's becoming more in demand among today's consumers, among modern consumers, and why? Well, I think one, we're, we're starting to see it more in products that are out there. So consumers are starting to understand a little bit more about it. But also what we're finding is, is that while lots of groups are out there promoting these ingredients that enhance mood or focus or concentration or cognition and so forth, many of them are wrapped around dosages that are not able to be achieved for you know many of the functional mushrooms for example require a much larger dose than people are using in the dosing so they're not seeing the benefit that they would derive whereas when you get a cognizant based product one there's the requirement to have a dose that matches their research and thus you're actually getting that feeling you're getting that function coming out of it and that's why I think we're starting to see people switching to it and adding it to their products. I'm curious, are there any other natural ingredients that complement Cognizant in a beverage formulation? It can go in a number of different ways. You can put it into your standard pre-workouts to improve the overall function of a pre-workout where you've got your energy, maybe you've got your blood flow, you've got your pump that you're looking for, and then you complement it with a, you know, the focus factor, that concentration that helps you zero in and have a much better workout. But we're also seeing where I would complement it with things like some of those other functional so-called ingredients like mushrooms and a few other ingredients out there where it works so well. The wonderful thing about Cognizant is it works in every format, right? From capsules to powders to liquids. 
Its taste is just so easy to work with. It's incredibly soluble. It's just a very, very easy ingredient to work with. Easy to work with and easy to learn more about by going to Cognizant.com. C-O-G-N-I-Z-I-N.com. David, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thanks for all the information and I look forward to catching up again soon. It's an absolute pleasure. And again, thank you for having me.